following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I can hardly believe it, but it is now the third Sunday in Advent. Um, Time just seems to slip away from us at this time of year, doesn't it? We are exploring this theme during Advent 2016 of looking for Jesus. Now, there's a lot of newer people here at uh, Artists in these past few weeks. We're so glad that you are with us. I hope that you've been blessed by your experience here. We've certainly been blessed to see you. Um, typically at Advent and at Lent, we use something called the lectionary to uh, give us a framework of scripture to look at during the season. And they're chosen appropriate to, to the, uh, the meaning of the season on the church calendar. We've been doing that a long time, a number of years, and we decided to go a little more thematic this year. So it's a little different for those of us who are longtime artisans, um, but I hope that it's been um, meaningful to you. It certainly has been for me to think about how we can look for Jesus in our world during this important season of the year. We started off the series uh, with the first week, the first Sunday in Advent, talking about looking for Jesus in prayer and how different types of prayer can... um, prepare our hearts for, for the coming of Jesus, the Christ child, um, for the second coming, and for living in the world in between those two great realities. And I hope that some of those different techniques of prayer um, you've been able to put into practice and they've been meaningful to you. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about because you weren't here that week, you can go listen on the podcast and maybe that would be useful to you too. The second week, which was last week, we talked about discerning Jesus. Discerning just means d- d- deciding, judging between some things and Um, doing the hard work of trying to figure out where do we see Jesus in the world around us? Is this Jesus at work or is this something else? Is nothing going on here or is Jesus actually here and just hard to see? (laughs) Because that's the way it is sometimes, isn't it? Even if we're people of deep faith, there are moments where we look around us and think, I see no evidence of Jesus right now and boy, I sure could use some Jesus right now. This shouldn't surprise us. As I've told you, each week in this series, Jesus himself warned his disciples, his contemporaries, at the time when he was alive on earth, that this would happen. He said it three times, as recorded in the Gospel of John, some version of, the time is coming when I'm going to leave, and where I'm going you cannot come, and you will look for me, and you will not find me. Have you had an experience during this season of Advent where you've looked around in the world for Jesus and haven't been able to find him? That's what Advent is about. Um, Some of us don't allow ourselves to have that experience. We push that kind of stuff to the side because we think uh, doubt will compromise our salvation or whatever. But the reality is, is if you are not... um, Acknowledging and engaging with that sense of wonder about where Jesus is to be found, then you've probably skipped already to Christmas, and it's not Christmas yet. We observe Advent on purpose. And so today, for the third week of this series, we're going to talk about confession, which I'll explain in just a minute, but first let me tell you what will happen next week, because it's very different from what's happened the past three weeks. Next week, we have what's called an immersed service. And uh, it's not linear. It's not uh, a liturgy. 
It's not all up here and you're all down there. It's actually based on stations. It's self-directed. It's multi-sensory. Uh, it's experiential. And you can come anytime between 9 and noon next week and be part of the immersed service. And we've had a handful of people who've worked very hard and will continue to work very hard to put this together for us. And you don't want to miss it. But you don't have to come right at 11 a.m. or 8.45 if you're usually an 8.45 person. Or let's be honest, 8.57 if you're usually an 8.45 person. <laughs> right? I disparage them and they're not even here. That's not nice, is it? So next week is immersed. You can come at any time. It, t- it could take you anywhere between a half an hour and an hour to go through it. You're welcome to bring your children through with you if you have kids. Um, that's next week. And then, uh, of course, we have a Christmas Eve service at 4 p.m. And there's an informal gathering kind of in the works for Christmas morning at 11 there's no official service that day, but there, there will be some people here, it sounds like. So that's what's coming up. All right. So today, we look for Jesus in confession. And uh, I need to start with a confession, which is that when our leadership team and staff got together last spring and planned out the coming 12 months, the intention was to have a whole teaching series on confession during Lent which is the season before Easter. And instead, what ended up happening is that it got boiled down to one sermon during Advent. Uh, and so there's so many things that, are, that were already starting to, to brew in my mind about confession and things I'd like to share with you and ways I'd like to explore the idea, and I'm limited with what I can do today, even if I go a little bit long, which I did in the earlier service. And so I guess I would say this, if, if you're interest is piqued by any of this, and you would like to have me do that someday, that whole series on confession, um, just let me know, and we'll get it on the calendar for, uh, I'm not sure when, but we'll, we'll do it. I would love to, to go deeper with it. What I want to do today, since we're limited, is actually use the prayer that we prayed together earlier, which is the Confession of Sin from the Anglican Prayer Book, the Book of Common Prayer, um, as a framework for understanding our, our act of confession. And my hope is that by the time we get to the end of it, we'll understand why this fits in this series, why confession is a way of looking for Jesus, just like prayer and discernment are ways of looking for Jesus. Is that fair enough? So what we will do is go through that prayer, phrase by phrase. And if you don't know, this prayer, some version of this prayer, is at least 500 years old. The Book of Common Prayer was put together by Thomas Cranmer in uh, the 16th century. And so we love old stuff at Artisan, and this is an old thing. Um, so I wonder, uh, those of you who've been around long enough or who have um, memory that lasts longer than 20 minutes, what are the first three words in the Confession of Sin? With, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not warn Keith that I was going to uh, quiz you, but now you, don't, you, you can all get 100 on the quiz. It's an open book test. How does the prayer start? Most merciful God. And that is where we need to start. So many of us, um, either we were raised in the church or we weren't, but we have this sense about what, what Christians believe and how they act and what they think about God. So many of us have... Um, we're, we are um, impoverished in our understanding of God's mercy. And so I love that this prayer starts with these words. So the best uh, resource I have found from modern writing about confession is this book right here. Some of you have seen this before. It's by Richard Foster. It's called Celebration of Discipline. 
and it's a book that talks about um, the classic Christian practices, classic spiritual disciplines, if you will. There's a whole chapter on confession, which I reread in preparation for today, and I've read this so many times, and I never noticed the significance that this, um, this chapter starts with these words. I'm just going to read to you this paragraph, if you'll permit me to do that, because it's so powerful. It starts in a different place than I would have thought. This is what he says. At the heart of God is the desire to give and to forgive. Because of this, he set into motion the entire redemptive process that culminated in the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection. The usual notion of what Jesus did on the cross runs something like this. People were so bad and so mean and God was so angry with them that he could not forgive them unless somebody big enough took the rap for the whole lot of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, redeem it. Wouldn't you have thought that a chapter on confession would have started with the idea that we are all colossal screw-ups? or using the theological language, that we are all totally depraved, in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. Do you see how long it took in that sentence to get to God's mercy? But this confession, and that understanding of confession from Foster, starts with mercy. Most merciful God. If you don't want to believe me, you don't want to believe Richard Foster, listen to the Apostle Paul. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Earlier in that same letter he had written, Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's not God's anger that leads us to repentance. It's not God's wrath that leads us to repentance. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so if you have this um, uh, kind of very natural, emotional, spiritual response to confession that goes something like, ah, (laughs) maybe you need to revisit what you were taught about God and what you believe about God before confession can be as meaningful to you as I truly believe it can be. If you've ever witnessed um, a coerced, forced public confession of sin, dragged up in front of the church and forced to admit that you did this or that thing, you probably have that visceral reaction that I gave a minute ago. What was it? (laughs) Please do your best to put that aside and start with the words, Most Merciful God. What comes next? We confess. Who confesses? We do. Do I think that you sometimes should say to God, I confess that I have sinned? Yes, I absolutely think you should do that, but this prayer reminds us that confession is a corporate discipline, which is to say it is one that the entire body engages in together. We confess. You word nerds might be interested to know or might already know that confess means to declare together. Right. So if you are in conflict You are in uh, struggle together. 
if you conform to something, you are forming together with that thing. If you confess, you are declaring together. We are declaring together. We confess. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. How many of you, when you uh, pray the prayer of confession in your seat here at Artisan, and you do the work, which we don't always do, of thinking about your actual sins and confessing them to God in that moment, how many of you think about something that you've done to somebody else? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against uh, Steve when we punched him in the face, right? Right? Steve. That sin and all sins are sins against God because God is the king of the whole world and he has set up the realm to be ruled in his way. And when we step outside of that rule, even in committing an offense against another human being, another person, another creation, we are sinning against God because God is the king. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and Indeed, if you were uh, thinking that it might be a good thing during the season of Advent to, to sit down and spend some time intentionally confessing to God your sins, which is a good idea, by the way, you could do a lot worse than starting with a yellow legal pad or um, an iPad or whatever kind of pad you would do it on and write thought, word, and deed at the top and think through, how have I sinned in each of these areas, Right? Now, the deeds are usually obvious. I punched Steve in the face, right? The words are a little more subtle. I told Steve where he could go, (laughs) right? The thoughts are a little bit more difficult to parse out, aren't they? I personally, not, not everybody had the same exact church experience that I had, but I had a church experience that was very preoccupied with your thought life as if that were even a thing different from the rest of your life, right? And you would, the, the, like the, the central verse for people who are wanting to be thought life police is when Jesus does the teaching about adultery, right? You know this verse if you're a church nerd like I am. Um, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery, right? And they say, oh, you better not think about uh, anything, Right? Or you're sinning, right? Now, I don't think that's what Jesus meant by that. Now, this is not a sermon about what Jesus said in that instance, and I can't really unpack why I don't think that, but I'd be happy to talk to you about it sometime if you want. And I certainly don't think that you shouldn't care what you think about. The thought is right here in the prayer, and I, I affirm it, right? But here's what I think it means. The sins of thought are the ones where we entertain the idea about the words and the deeds, and uh, I'm thinking about Steve and what a jerk he is and how he did that horrible thing to me. And I would love to tell him where he could go. And these are the words I would use. And my heart starts to race a little bit. And I start to, I start to simmer in my anger. And it starts to feel good, right? And then I think about when I punch Steve, I'm going to get him right in the cheek, right in that stupid cheek of his, his stupid, ugly cheek. Do you, do you hear the kind of 
stuff that begins to boil over in you when you, when you, um, when you give these thoughts so much space, when you embrace them and you think, oh, bring it on, this feels good. I'm going to think about all of these sins. Now, I'm not actually given to violence. Almost never have I uh, raised my fist at anybody. <laughs> um, my sins are uh, others. But the same thing happens regardless of what type we're talking about. You don't get to word and deed without the thought, usually. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. What if you sat down sometime this week and wrote thoughts, words, and deeds and spent 20 minutes writing down the ways that you'd sinned against God and God's kingdom in those three ways? Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. I often ask you to pause on this one when we pray this prayer because it's so important to remember that sins are not just things that you do. There are things that you fail to do, right? It's harder to find them, but there are still sins. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's talk about Steve again. Steve's our punching bag this morning. Uh, It's easy to say, Lord, forgive me. I confess to you that I punched Steve. (laughs) It's a little harder to say, Lord, uh, somebody else punched Steve and I was there and I didn't get in between and and take the hit on myself, right? Maybe that would have been sin for you not to have stepped in in that way. It's easy to say, I told Steve where he could go and why. It's a little harder to say someone was uh, verbally abusing Steve and I was right there and I didn't say anything. Those sins are harder to see, and they almost, I don't know about you, but they bring more shame on my heart when I realize them than the other ones. It's important to remember. There's so much work that needs to be done in the world that doesn't involve doing stuff, but actually involves, or it doesn't involve not doing bad stuff, but actually involves doing the, the right thing and the good thing. The prayer goes on to to confess, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. And this comes from a very famous teaching of Jesus when he was teaching and somebody came and asked him, teacher, what what is the greatest commandment in all the law? The Jewish law. And he said, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was quoting, as you might remember, the book of Deuteronomy, which we just spent a long time in, and I think we probably went into that during that series. So when we confess we've not loved you with our whole heart, we are confessing that we failed in what Jesus identified as the greatest commandment. The prayer goes on to say, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, which of course is just the same teaching of Jesus, because he wasn't willing to just say, here's the one thing. He said, here's two. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He went on to say, all of the law and prophets, the entire Torah, everything that Jews believe hangs on those two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And by the way, that love your neighbor as yourself did not come from the book of Deuteronomy. It came from that warm, fuzzy book we all love to read for devotional uh, work, the book of Leviticus. (laughs) Right? 
It's in Leviticus 19, which is, um, by my math, right between Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, which, unfortunately, you hear quoted a lot more than Leviticus 19. Do you know what I'm talking about right now? All right. Next time somebody quotes Leviticus 18 and 20 at you, ask them if they know what's in Leviticus 19. They might. They might. Now here's where the prayer takes a turn. What comes next in the prayer is this. After identifying all the ways that we've sinned, we say we are truly sorry. Now sorrow is a, is a difficult thing to understand in this context. How many of you as a child were ever told by a parent or a teacher, you have to tell Jimmy you're sorry. You have to tell Steve you're sorry. <laughs> right? And how many of you, if you're a parent or a teacher, have ever said this to a kid? You've got to tell them, you're, say you're sorry. And the, the kid, who is probably you or the kid you know, is like, I'm sorry. Right? How heartfelt is that apology? Do you ever wonder why you're spending so much ex- energy extracting this apology from a child? You're thinking, what is the point of all this? Oh. Or when you were a kid, you're like, oh, I don't, don't feel sorry. I'm not going to sorry. Right? I can't say this any better than Richard Foster says when he's talking about how sorrow is necessary to a good confession. Let me read you a little bit more from what he said. This was so eye-opening for me and so powerful and so freeing. I hope it will be for you too. Richard Foster says, Sorrow is necessary to a good confession. Sorrow, as it relates to confession, is not primarily an emotion, though emotion may be involved. It is an abhorrence at having committed the sin, a deep regret at having offended the heart of the Father. Now hear this. Sorrow is an issue of the will before it is an issue of the emotions. In fact, being sorrowful in the emotions without a godly sorrow in the will destroys the confession. That's entirely good news for me. Because when I don't feel like saying I'm sorry, because frankly I'm not... I can say the words, I am sorry, by an act of will. And if he's right, and I think he actually is, that activates something in your spirit by saying that. And the emotions usually will follow after the will when it comes to sorrow in the context of confession. So if you can't work up the feelings of sorrow about your own sins, you might try saying the words first. And see if that helps. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Oh, I'd love to talk all about humility right now. (laughs) I want to talk about repentance briefly. Repentance in the biblical context simply means changing your mind, right? You heard me preach on this before. In fact, the Bible even says that God changes his mind sometimes. Or that God repents, right? And, and it means he changed his mind. It doesn't mean that God sinned and was like sorry for it and repented and committed to doing better. All of those things come with repentance. But the word itself simply means change your mind. Now, uh, depending on your theological background, you may be equally troubled by the idea that God changes his mind as you are that God sins. Um, and we could talk about that a lot too. But repentance means changing your mind. And so if you come to an act of confession with no intention to change anything, 
and you never do, then that's not a complete confession. You haven't done all the work that you need to do. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Now here's a beautiful truth. I always talk about confessions as we have these confessions of sin over here and we have the confessions of our faith and our shared belief over here. And you might kind of assume that never the twain shall meet, but the truth is this confession of sin makes a theological doctrinal statement about who Jesus is. Christ is not a surname after all, right? It's a, it's a title. It means Messiah. When we say for the sake of your son Jesus Christ, we're saying that Jesus is God's son and that Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed king over all of the world. That's a significant theological statement tucked into this confession of sin, and I think that's pretty powerful. And it's for his sake that we ask God for what? Mercy. How did the prayer begin? Most merciful God. And how does it, how does the, how does it begin its conclusion? Have mercy on us. The circle has been drawn together. We come to confession expecting mercy. We end our confession by asking for mercy. The Jesus prayer, that ancient Eastern Orthodox prayer, says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The church has shortened that in some places to be just, Lord, have mercy. Kyrie eleison, that's the, that's the, um, the words of the Mass, right? We don't typically do uh, the Catholic-style Mass at Artisan, but I've often thought, wouldn't it be amazing to commission our ridiculously talented musicians to write music for each part of the, of the Mass, if you know what it is? Uh, and, and like do an artisan mass where you have the Kyrie Eleison, you have the Agnus Dei, and you have the Sanctus and all that. If you're not a, like a liturgy nerd, I'm sorry, but it would be awesome, trust me. <laughs> trust me. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. Remembering, though, that the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Receiving forgiveness and offering forgiveness are locked together. And if you're not willing to extend forgiveness to someone, it will be difficult for you to receive God's forgiveness. It's not that God will be less willing to forgive you, but it's that you will be less willing to receive it. That we may. This phrase, that we may, means so that we may. Right? In other words, in the wake of all of this stuff, have mercy on us, For this reason, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. In this new life, post-repentance, our hearts and our minds have changed and our action will change as well. We will begin to delight in God's will where before it seemed like a burden. We will begin to walk in God's ways where before we couldn't find the path if we receive his mercy. You know, a lot of us, a lot of us want to work for justice in the world, right? If I said, how many of you, show of hands, who wants justice in the world? You'd all raise your hands, right? We all want to be part of making it right. And most of us want to jump to that step before we do the spiritual work required to get there and to have any success at it. I had a very 
um, fascinating conversation with a member of our leadership team this past week, and we were talking about this, about how sometimes we at Artisan um, want, want to work for justice because we believe we're called to it, and we are. It's one of our five foundational values. It's, it came from, from God's inspiration and from the scriptures and all those things, but we want to get out there and do something, and we don't realize that we haven't prepared ourselves spiritually for it, and so very often we tire We haven't had a change of heart, and so the change of behavior only lasts so long. St. Augustine said, "The, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. So you want to work for justice? Confess your sin. And by the way, you're not going to like what I'm about to say to you now. But this brings us back to the idea of we confess, of the corporate confession right? Because so many of the things in the world that we would like to see changed are also things that some of us benefit from and perpetuate in that world. So for example, if you want to do the work of racial reconciliation and you are a white person like I am, and you're not willing to get together with your fellow white people and say, we confess that we are part of the problem, that we benefit from these evil systems that persist in our world, then you can work until you're blue in the face for racial reconciliation and it will ring hollow and the, the, it will not strike true and it will not take root because you haven't done the spiritual work first. The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. Don't try to jump to good works before you confess your evil ones. And I confess that as, a, as the pastor of Artisan Church, I've failed in this way uh, of sometimes trying to push us out to do works of justice because we have to, we're called to, let's do it. Come on, everybody. And we run out of energy and we don't finish the work. We have to do the spiritual work first. This is why our thematic thread for the year, Deep Waters, talks about three movements of spiritual formation, scripture, prayer, and service. And we cannot do the service work without the scripture and prayer work with any longevity or success or fruitfulness or efficiency. All right. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Glory is a word that's mostly reserved for like national anthems and patriotic displays and so forth. The, The French, anybody know the French national anthem? Allons enfants de la patrie, le jour de gloire est arrivé. Let's go, children of the fatherland. The day of glory is here. And of course it's talking about going out to war and fighting for France. Do you like how I put that over in Europe so it doesn't... <laughs> I thought maybe I should do that more often um, when I'm talking about politics and, and faith. But seeking... God's glory, the glory of God's name, of course, transcends and obliterates all of those geopolitical boundaries that we insist on building up all the time throughout the entire history of humanity from literally from the time of Abel and Cain and the establishment of civilization. We've been doing this. And in the wake of our confession and our repentance and God's mercy and forgiveness, we delight in his will and walk in his name and then we bring glory to his name. Hallelujah. And so that's our confession of sin unpacked. 
There's a lot more to it than you can get when you say it in 30 seconds, isn't there? There are two things that you find in the Book of Common Prayer after the confession of sin, one of which I sometimes remember to do and the other of which I didn't even know was there until I did some research this past week. The first one is what I said earlier. It's the the words of absolution, the words of forgiveness. After we have confessed our sin, somebody should say to you, to us, Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. That's the first one. The second one is this. These words are in the Book of Common Prayer after the confession of sin. Imagine me saying this to you after we prayed that prayer earlier. If there be any of you who by this means cannot quiet his own conscience herein, and of course this is old language, we could say his or her there. If there be any of you who by this means cannot quiet their own conscience herein, but require further comfort or counsel, let them come to me or some other minister of God's word and open their grief. You're like, that sounds kind of Catholic. (laughs) But even Martin Luther, the architect of the Protestant Reformation, advised his people, exhorted them to go to confession. And we don't do that in our tradition. But if we had this whole series on confession, I would have spent a whole sermon talking about confession of sin to someone else, another human being who you actually know. I might even have set up a confessional booth in here for you to come into during the week. Because I think this is a powerful thing. And I could, I, could, I could give you a whole sermon with Scripture and everything about that. But right now, I just have to say, whoa, that's pretty powerful. Imagine if we did that. Imagine if we actually extended to each other permission to come and confess our sins to, their sins to us. Wow, that gets heavy really fast, doesn't it? But here's the thing I still haven't addressed with you. And, and as time runs late... I still haven't explained to you how confession could possibly be an act of looking for Jesus. How does this idea fit in the whole series that we're doing for Advent? Well, I would say two things briefly about that. The first way it matters is that if you're looking for Jesus and you haven't done the work of confession, you are looking for someone in the dark. And you need to turn on the light. And confession is the light switch. This is from 1 John, chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if you are having difficulty seeing Jesus in the world, it's possible that one reason is because you have failed to confess your sins, and you are walking in darkness, calling God a liar. And that if you would be willing to confess your sin, you would step into the light and you might be able to see Jesus in your midst again. But let us never forget, and this is the second thing that I would say makes confession fit for this series, looking for Jesus in Advent. Let us never forget that confession 
helps us in our search for Jesus because it reminds us of his deep mercy and God's endless love. Most merciful God, dot, 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 have mercy on us and forgive us. If we turn to confession, it reminds us of the character of God which is perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus who on the cross, subject to the violence and all the evil of the world, extended his arms and said, Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. And if you want to find God, you look for Jesus and you receive his mercy because it's in the mercy of Jesus that you can best understand who our great God is. And that's my prayer for you this Advent season, that you would know God's mercy through his son, Jesus Christ, who on the same night he was betrayed by one of his friends, instituted the Lord's Supper, breaking bread and saying, whenever you do this, remember my body, which is broken for you, and took the cup and said, whenever you drink this, remember my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And the apostle tells us when we take communion, we proclaim Christ's death until he returns. And so God's mercy, it could be said, is on the menu. <laughs> and I hope that doesn't seem flippant or cutesy about something so sacred. But you can literally eat God's love at the communion table. And this is why we celebrate it. Holy Communion every week when we're together. And so as we continue to worship and sing together, uh, I invite you to come and receive communion, dipping the bread in either the wine or the juice and receiving it into your body and into your heart. Now typically at um, communion, we also offer prayer with the prayer team up here under the cross. But as you can see, we've had some construction, which I'll tell you about in a little bit. And there's no space there right now. And so uh, we'll have a member of the prayer team who will be, um, let's Let's have them um, go in this back corner there and maybe we can make a couple of chairs of space for them. If you'd like to receive personal prayer, go back that way for this week. Um, uh, But uh, however you're responding to God's mercy and the Spirit's leading, um, would you come and receive his gifts for you? Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.